Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So, Jim, is there anything worse than doing nothing about a crisis? Yes, doing something that makes the crisis worse. Well, the crisis we're going to talk about today is climate change. And our big question is, how can we be sure that the policies we adopt actually work? The Green New Deal unpacked Megan McArdle. If you think that climate change is an existential threat, which I think it may well be, right? I, I am maybe a little less absolutist than the left is, but I don't want to run a one-way experiment with our climate. Um, if you think it's that important, you don't do anything that might derail your efforts to get it addressed. And tacking on universal basic income and a whole host of other completely unrelated spending plans that are going to do nothing to lower our carbon emissions is a really bad way to start. Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How, how do, do we, we fix, fix it? it? How do we fix it? First term representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez didn't waste any time getting started in Congress. Her Green New Deal is one of the most ambitious policy proposals we've seen probably since the 1930s. The details are fuzzy, but the broad strokes suggest the Green New Deal would virtually ban fossil fuels, replace most cars and airplanes with trains, and along the way, give everyone free college, free health care, and a guaranteed job. But would it actually prevent climate change? That's the focus of today's show. And to help us analyze it, we've turned to one of our favorite hard-headed economic realists, Megan McArdle. Megan is a Washington Post columnist and the author of the book, The Upside of Down, Why Failing Well is the Key to Success. And this is her second time on our show, How Do We Fix It? Megan joins us via Skype from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to How Do We Fix It? Thank you. So, Always glad to be here. So what is the Green New Deal? Well, it is a very expansive plan, a, a grand plan. Basically, the idea is to decarbonize the entire U.S. economy within 10 years. But that's not all. You also get a host of left-wing priorities, long-term wish list items, like guaranteed income, universal basic income, that overall would radically change not just the energy format of the economy, but kind of the entire way that people relate to both the government and the market. So... The big thing that's being said in favor of the Green New Deal 
is that it's changed the conversation and that more people perhaps now are aware that we need to do something radical and big, even if it isn't exactly the details of this proposal, about climate change. There is some truth to this. I mean, it is true, certainly, that at any given time, the debate has the things that are inside what's considered reasonable and the things that are considered outside and that that changes. I mean, gay marriage, for example, is something that 30 years ago would have seemed like a totally crazy notion. And now it seems like a totally crazy notion to suggest that we could repeal it. So that part of it is correct, that there is this friend that can move. But the kind of idea that you ask for something super, super, super extreme, what you get is a carbon tax and a lot of subsidies for renewables. I don't think there's a lot of evidence over time that just asking for something crazy has actually meaningfully moved the debate. But Megan, I think you're being a little bit naughty in, in one area, and that is calling all of this stuff crazy. I mean, it, it's yes, it's left wing. And yes, it's something that that a lot of people out on the left have wanted for a long time. But crazy is a, you know, that's a bit of a put down. OK, so some of this is actually crazy, right? It's not physically possible to decarbonize the U.S. economy in 10 years, <laughs> even if you think that that's a really great thing to do. And like, let me I should say, I think global warming is a huge problem. I think we should do something about it. I am all for solutions for this. I'm all for even radical action. Look, if the climate is really going to turn into a massive dystopian hothouse, then you're justified in having a kind of World War II style mobilization to stop it. But even if I were the, the greenhouse gases czar, I could not physically mobilize enough resources to actually take all the carbon out of the economy in the time frame they specify. So that is crazy. And there's a bunch of other things that are, I would argue, crazy because they're focusing in the wrong place. So, for example, one item is they're going to retrofit every building in the United States to make it more energy efficient. Right. And like that's look, making buildings energy efficient is a fine thing to do when you're building them. And it's a fine thing to do if you happen to be renovating your house. You should absolutely be, you know, upgrading your insulation, you know, trying to seal windows and doors and so forth. But if you were going to make a budget for the things that would most cost effectively lower our carbon emissions, lower our energy utilization, that wouldn't be even number 20 on the list. Right. You said something I thought really interesting about the Green New Deal, that by throwing in all of these uh, kind of extreme ideas, many of them totally unrelated to climate, like health care and college, you said you're afraid it will poison attempts to fix the problem by tacking on unrelated projects. If you think that climate change is an existential threat, which I think it may well be, right? I, I am maybe a little less absolutist than the left is, but I don't want to run a one-way experiment with our climate. We only have the one. Um, if you think it's that important, you don't do anything that might derail your efforts to get it addressed. And tacking on universal basic income and a whole host of other completely unrelated spending plans that are going to do nothing to lower our carbon emissions is a really bad way to start. But maybe they think that Really, the problem comes down to capitalism. I mean, is that some of the mindset that's informing this kind of thinking? I think it is, but I don't think it is very well thought through. 
in the sense that capitalism is way more productive than socialism? Sure. But in fact, socialism was incredibly energy inefficient. So it wasn't like they were necessarily using less energy. It was that they were just producing less stuff with the energy they did use. In fact, a lot of the worst pollution in the world is in the places that were controlled by the Soviet Union. Yeah, I've got to say that I visited East Berlin and also was in Poland in the 1980s, and the air quality was terrible there. Yes, because in fact, energy is useful not for you know, sating our ridiculous capitalist-driven desires for stupid things. It's useful for things like heating our homes and washing our clothes and moving us from place to place faster than we can get there by walking, right? People want those things. Socialism is going to want to give those things to people. Capitalism wants to give those things to people. Um, and so I think the idea that you can somehow solve this by, uh, by getting rid of global capitalism just fundamentally mistakes why people are consuming so much energy, which is that energy is a way better way to stay warm and dry and comfortable and well-fed than the old methods of the pre-fossil fuel era. Let's look at something that on the face of it may well be sensible, which is high-speed rail, um, which has worked pretty well in Europe. What's wrong with that here? Well, there are a couple things wrong with it. And the first is that high-speed rail, if it substitutes for an airplane trip, and if the trains run pretty full, then it's an environmental boon. But in fact, Low-speed rail is a lot better for the environment than high-speed rail, accelerating a very heavy train car. Remember that like in a train car full of passengers, most of the weight is coming from the train car, not from the passengers. So every time you move it, you have to accelerate this giant piece of metal. Um, That takes a lot of energy, however you're getting it. If you look at China, they have basically three city clusters. And the biggest distance between points in that city cluster is about the distance from New York to Chicago, right? So the U S is just bigger. Europe is even, even less uh, sort of spread out. Um, And so when you have cities that are very close together, high speed rail makes more sense. The other problem in the United States though, is that we make it very difficult to build. We have all of these procedural rules that make it easy to block development. I mean, you've seen this with pipelines. You've seen this with rail. You've seen this with the New York City Second Avenue subway, which costs $2 billion a mile to tunnel. Um, And so that's part of it. But, you know, eminent domain is just a big part of it is in the United States, it is very difficult to get a hold of land to build on. It makes me wonder, are they even serious about actually trying to reduce carbon emissions, or do they have other more important priorities to them? Look, if you look at this document, it's a really bad document for building a broad political coalition across the spectrum. It's a really good document for building a left-wing progressive coalition. And because of that, it doesn't mention any of the things that might anger any potential progressive coalition partner. So it doesn't talk about, say, making it easier to live in cities by getting rid of all of the ridiculous procedural red tape that neighborhood groups use to block new building. That would be a big environmental boon because living in a dense area is much less energy intensive than living out in a farm somewhere or living in a big suburban house. Um, But it doesn't mention that. It doesn't mention nuclear. It doesn't mention a lot of the things that would make it easier to get a broad coalition, um, but it mentions things like UBI, 
the universal basic income, right? Yes, which appeal to other members of the Progressive Coalition. Right. So they would need to they need to take over pieces of property, and yep. we just make that so difficult. But I want to circle back to something you mentioned before, which is nuclear power. We did a podcast about it a week or two ago, but. I find it very revealing and troubling that the one thing we know actually works to bring down your carbon emissions, the one thing that has worked in countries around the world, most notably in France, is not even on the table. Um, I think there are big obstacles to nuclear, and one is kind of broad public unease with nuclear, and then there is a very focused, targeted thing about it in parts of the environmental movement. Now, there are people in the environmental movement who've said, no, we need to do nuclear, but they're a minority. And I think it does go back to the fact that people have an, a special terror of things they can't see, of threats that are like a dam. At least you feel like you could see the water coming and run. But with a nuclear disaster, you, you don't have any control over it. You could get poisoned in your sleep and never know. And so I think that it is an uphill battle. But I think that if we're if, you know, carbon, if you think carbon is poisoning the planet, then we are being poisoned. It's just slow and we can't see it. And nuclear is now very safe. There are newer, safer designs that have been developed since Three Mile Island. You know, you're preaching to the choir on this. But what I find what I find interesting is I often hear from people, well, you know, the other big problem from nuclear, including my podcast partner at times, the other big problem with nuclear is just it's so expensive. It's just not practical. But I'm hearing this from the same people who think that we are going to completely re-engineer our power grid to run entirely on wind and solar. We're going to install massively expensive battery backups and pumped storage systems. And nobody's talking about the, the, the you know, sort of stratospheric cost of those programs. Are we, are, we're being, it seems like we're being very selective about which costs we care about and which ones we don't. Yes. I mean, nuclear is expensive because it has to be very safe. And I want it to be very safe, so that's good. But it's, you know, part of the problem with nuclear is just that all the cost is up front, right? You have to build this incredibly expensive plant, but like once you've done that, it's actually very cheap to operate. And so you have to think of it as an investment. The other thing is that, you know, batteries are not free. The kind of massive battery storage that we would need in order to run on a 100% renewable grid. That would be extremely expensive. It would be dirtier than nuclear power because the waste created by lithium-ion batteries is no joke. And alternatives, things like pump storage. So this has been something people have been talking about for a long time. There's also things where you heat, superheat sand, you make molten sand, and then when it cools, it releases energy um, using solar arrays. Pump storage does work in some places. Norway is basically offsetting all of Denmark's aggressive wind power investments by using pump storage for their electricity when they have overages, as they often do. Um, but it's probably not a global solution. You've got to be pretty close to a dam in order for pump storage to work. And not everywhere in the United States is. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And we're speaking with Megan McArdle about the problems with the Green New Deal. Coming up next, not just problems, solutions. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Megan, let's talk solutions. You have a few, uh, despite your general skepticism. You say the government should make massive investments in scientific research as one way of, of warding off climate change. In what kinds of things, for example? Um, so we do need to upgrade our grid. We need better batteries. We really need better batteries. <laughs> the number one thing we need is better batteries. The question is really, is it actually physically possible to build the batteries that we need? We don't know. But you know what? The government should be plowing a ton of research dollars into finding out. Um, we should be looking at ways to make renewables cheaper, um, more efficient, et cetera, et cetera. Wind power, sun power, geothermal. These are all things that we could be doing, should be doing. There are things that we can do in terms of new building codes and providing federal government money. Um, there are lots of areas in the United States where something like geothermal home heating actually works pretty well. And this is a method where you basically run pipes underground, uh, pipes filled with water, and they go out and get coolness or warmth from the earth and then run it back into your house. That is something that the government could be subsidizing. Um, it could be subsidizing solar panels for people. It could be subsidizing solar installations. I'm not saying that there isn't a role for research and subsidy, but here's the thing, and this is something we didn't talk about, but the actual biggest problem we face when we look at dealing with, with global warming, we aren't the biggest problem. We used to be the biggest problem. Per capita, we still consume more energy than anyone who's not living in a, in a very low population Petro state. When you say we... You right. mean Americans? Uh, I mean Americans, Canadians, Europeans. None of these places, which are the places where all of the effort is happening, they're no longer where most of the emissions are coming from. Most of the emissions are coming from Asia. And most of the emissions are going to come from Asia because you have in China and India two, you know, 2.5 billion people who would very much like to have a higher quality lifestyle. And that means a more carbon intensive lifestyle. And so if we are going to actually get the earth to a point where it's stable, where we're no longer heating the planet anymore, we can't look for any sort of solution that just makes it after you've subsidized it, that makes it cheaper for people to use renewables, not on a subsidized basis. It needs to be cheaper on a market basis because China and India have hundreds of millions of poor people who want all of the things we have. And they're going to get there by whatever the fastest and cheapest route is. So what can we do in the U.S. to make sure that the, the gains that we make or the technologies that we develop do get exported around the world? You know, we should be leading on developing these technologies. And I haven't even talked about cement and steel, which are <laughs> giant carbon stocks and which we desperately need to. There are some promising technologies for making much lower carbon steel and cement, uh, but we need to be pursuing those aggressively. And when we have found them, 
if they are funded by government research, we should make those patents available to the world for free. So use our technology, copy us, because every time you copy us, you are helping to cool the planet. And so is this going to be a net benefit for the U.S. economy? No. I'm not going to try to sell this as we're going to get rich doing this. We are all in this together. The United States has the the know-how, the kind of can-do spirit, the size of the economy to be the world leader in getting us to a lower carbon future. But in order to do that, we need to act like a leader and we need to treat the other people who are following behind us as if it is just as important that they get taken care of as we do. Another thing that wasn't really in the Green New Deal, but that a lot of more market-oriented policy analysts like, is the idea of a carbon tax. You're for it, I am absolutely for it. Let's get the private market working on this problem. Let's incentivize people to figure out ways to do what we do with less. What I'm not in favor of is any kind of command and control structure that attempts to just reduce what we consume. Everything that we do should be oriented towards finding the easiest way to lower our carbon footprint, not the most morally pleasing way or the way that you know keeps the progressive coalition together, but whatever it is that makes it easy for people to do less damage to our planet is the route we should go. And that's why prices are so great, because it lets people figure out what do they not care about, right? Megan McArdle, thanks very much for joining us on How Do We Fix It? Coming up, Jim and I debate or at least chat about what was just said on our show. Megan McArdle, refreshingly blunt and insightful as always. You know, this whole Green New Deal thing, Richard, is worrying me a lot because I feel like it shows where the left is moving our society and it's not in a good direction. There's so much magical thinking in this document, this idea that once you tackle a problem, start spending money on it, you're going to have so much money left over to do all these other things. They're not even really, as she said, not even really serious about the core issue here, which is global warming. And they're not as concerned as they should be about building any kind of consensus to actually fix the problem. I agree with you, except that what she's also saying is that both sides are to blame here. That that, that both the the Trump administration and its denial that, that climate change should even be dealt with is a problem. And now also this policy, which seems to spend at least as much time on unrelated issues like the universal basic income, which is highly debatable, and free college and free health care for all, which are probably unaffordable, uh, just distracts, great, distracts the were, attention from, even if they were the from this problem. Ideas in the world. Yeah, the part of it that I do like, though, is this idea that we have to do something radical about climate change. The problem is that the, the, what they're putting forward is not practical. And so the argument becomes, and I don't know where I stand on this, is it more damaging to do something super dramatic, uh, even if it's even if some of the policy details are wrong, than being more, say, rational or uh, moderate in in your approach to it in order to build coalitions? I think sometimes you need to be really dramatic. Yeah, but what if what you do makes the problem worse? This is what we're seeing around the world. It came up on our show about nuclear power. A lot of investments in alternative energy sounded great. But if you do them at the same time you're shutting down nuclear plants, you wind up in a worse position. The the facts matter, 
and the details matter, but the story also matters. Um, it, it's not, it's also building an emotional case and building a story based case for why we have to do something dramatic. But what if That's you're also the wrong part of it. story? That's my problem. You know, yes, st- the stories matter, but stories have also led people, uh, uh, various forms of populism. You mentioned Trump before. These forms of populism that tell these very compelling stories often lead the public astray into supporting policies that are really, really bad. We can't gamble with this. I, I love what Megan said about she doesn't want to run a one-way experiment with the climate. You know, even if some of the predictions are, aren't don't turn out as bad as we thought, why not take out the insurance? Well, it's the insurance policy, so, right? So I feel yeah. the same way about the political uh, fight for some solutions. Doing what makes uh, makes your base feel good and and makes people happy, you know, like the, the, the proposal has all the stuff about family farms and local agriculture. Listen, I love my farmer's market, but we don't have any research that indicates that that's going to solve global warming. We just don't know yet. And that's the problem with both sides is they're really talking about the wrong solutions for what should be an area where all of us can come together, at least to some extent, to solve this this dramatic problem that uh, the UN and, and many climate scientists give us only 10 or 12 years to make substantial changes to, to avoid drastic climate change. It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. If you want to find out more about producing podcasts, go to DaviesContent.com. And thanks for listening. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.